0: Welcome back, everybody. We have a lot to get to. The Dow Jones is down 1,100 points just today. It's down 10% from its highs, which means that we are in correction territory. Going to be talking a little bit about that. We have Bob Iger stepping down as the CEO of Disney, effective immediately. So this is a little bit of a shock to investors, but I'm going to be giving you my thoughts on this. And then we have M1 Finance reaching $1 billion in assets under management. This is a pretty big landmark. So I'll be highlighting some of the facts that came out within this article here and how it compares to other brokers that I think is interesting because that is the brokerage that I use. So a lot to dive into in this episode. I'm going to be going over my portfolio as well as answering questions and a lot of different news topics. Okay, so let's just jump right in. I'm sure the first thing that you notice is right there. Plus $5,427. I haven't seen that for a while. It's been a while back that I was only up $5,000. In fact, it seemed like just a week ago, I was up somewhere around $11,500, almost $12,000. I've been bouncing back between $12,000 in gains and $11,000. Now here we are, $5,427. So let's go ahead. Let's click on these smaller views here and see some red. The one day view, negative $2,910. So I lost nearly $3,000 of value in one day. 3.81%. Now, I go to the one-week view here. Gets quite a bit worse. Negative $6,242 for the last five days. 7.93% in the red. That's quite a lot of capital gains there. That is about half the total gains that I had completely wiped away in the past five days. This gives you an idea, a realistic, real-life view here, of how quickly gains can be wiped away in a significant downturn like we've seen in the past week. Then if I go to the past month here, so the month is actually better than the week view. I'm only down $4,888 in the past month, 6.43%. So the month isn't quite as bad. The week is actually the worst view here with the $6,242 in the red. Now you might ask, why am I showing you this? Why do I put out for display the days that I lose money? The week that I'm down $6,242, the day that I'm down $2,910, the month view, I'm down $4,800. Why am I putting this out there? Why am I displaying this? What is the purpose of it? I'm a long-term investor. I don't plan on selling any of these shares. So what is the purpose of me showing you guys this? The reason that I show my audience this type of thing is because I wanted this whole series, this show that I'm doing, to be something where it's a holistic view at investing. That you don't get fed one part of it where you're making money and everything's in the green and it's all fun and games, and then the part where we have a downturn, where we have the market going the red, I sweep that under the rug and I don't really display or show any of that. That's not what I'm about here. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to show both parts of it. This portfolio, you're going to see how it performs in the good and in the bad. So right now in this past week, we've wiped away about $6,000 of the gains. That's how quickly it can happen. Now, something else I'll mention is in this gains, there's two different parts to overall returns. So There's something called total returns, and that encompasses both of them. You have market gains, which are capital gains, and then you have earned dividends. Together, they make your total return. That's what that's called. So somebody shows you like a graph of the S&P 500 over the last 20 years, and they don't include dividends in the returns of that graph then they're not showing you the total return. And that is a misleading picture because most people would want to see the returns with the dividends being reinvested. In mine right here, you can see that now about half the gains are from dividends. 2,600 from dividends, 2,800 from market gains. The 2,800 from market gains, that could go red tomorrow. We could be in the negative on market gains tomorrow. And that's something that really could happen. It's very likely that this Friday, this will be in the red if the market keeps trending in the same direction. But what I want to point out is that regardless of what direction this market gains goes, this earned dividends is only going to go up. It's only going to continue to go up. Not every company is going to cut their dividends. So far, none in my portfolio have cut their dividends. And maybe a couple will if things get really bad and they become financially unhealthy. But even then, it will lower my income a little bit, but not much. I'll continue to enjoy these dividends rolling in despite whatever markets we face in the future. I track that on this graph here with my actual monthly income. This is the income that I receive from interest and dividends month over month. And you can see the trend of this increasing over and over. In the last month, I've earned $271 in dividends. So that's part of the reason that I like this type of investing that is focused on just having a stream of income because I don't really have to worry about the capital gains. I continue to earn this money despite what happens with the market. Now, I'm going to be doing something a little bit different here. I'm going to be going over five different news items, kind of talking points, things that I think are specifically negatives or threats in the market. And then I'm going to be telling you what I think is the biggest threat in the market. So let me go through these just one at a time here. The first thing, the U.S. health officials say the coronavirus will likely cause a global pandemic. Part of this, they say that while the virus is contained in the U.S., so far, the CDC officials said earlier today that the public needs to prepare for an eventual outbreak here. So this isn't something where they're like, there's a chance, there's a slight chance, but it's still rare. We have it under control. They're saying it's likely to happen, that it's somewhat inevitable to happen here. And by here, they mean in the U.S. If that happened, obviously that would cause more issues with the stock market. This is the first negative news item. And number two, we have the average PE ratio of the S and P 500. So this is a graph over time. On the graph here, we start around 1880, and then it goes all the way to present day. Now you can see that right now the average PE ratio of the S and P 500 is 22.4, which used to be a little bit higher because the stock market has came down 10%. It used to be about 24 was the PE ratio. Now it's came down a couple points but it's still higher than its historical average. So valuations of these companies that we're buying in the S&P 500 are still at a, a decent valuation, but now we're getting a little bit better of a deal than we were a week ago. Item number three, Senator Bernie Sanders is the clear front runner of the Democrat primaries. According to five thirty-eight polling data, he is at 31% chance right now, which is the highest by a long shot of any other candidate. So he has a three in 10 chance, while Vice President Biden, the next closest, has a one in six chance. And then we have Bloomberg at one in 100, and every other candidate at less than one in 100. Now, the reason that this is an item is because Bernie Sanders has expressly been against the current way that our capital markets run. He's wanting to implement changes to share buybacks, to dividend policy. He has advocated for taxes on trades. He's targeted private health insurers. He's targeted pharmaceutical companies. He's targeted our banking system. And he's targeted billionaires. Anyone who runs for presidency with the self-described label a socialist is going to cause concerns with some investors. So just to be clear, There's nothing political about this. I don't care who you vote for. I'm not endorsing or discouraging people to vote for Bernie Sanders. But this is something that you have to factor into your investments, that over 2020, politics will get extremely heated. If Senator Sanders is the nominee and he does go up and face President Trump, his views are going to be explained and they're going to be illustrated to a lot more people. So this is a factor in the market right now. Item number four, the federal government has very little ammunition to work with. Typically, the federal funds rate is already pretty high. It's already kind of high before we enter a recession. And what the federal government does is lowers it in response to a recession. You can see that through 2008 to 2010, the federal government dropped this rate down to near zero. And the reason they did that is because dropping the federal funds rate allows money to be more freely available to companies And that freely available money is very stimulatory to the economy. As you can see right now, the federal funds rate is already pretty low. 1.55%. That's already pretty low. The Fed has very little wiggle room to work with right now. On top of that, the federal government's balance sheet is pretty high. Something that the federal government can do that is stimulatory in a recession is again, exactly what they did in 2008. They can start purchasing assets themselves. This is like the federal government doing a share buyback program. They just start purchasing things and it creates some demand for those items, which increases the price. They did this in 2008 as a response to get us out of the recession. But as you can see right now, the Fed's balance sheet is already pretty high. So the federal government does not have a lot of wiggle room to work with. And number five, we have the federal surplus and deficit. You can see that right here in the year 2000, that our federal government was taking in more money in taxes than it was spending. What an oddity to have a government that spends less than what it takes in. So we had that, and then you can see after 2001, it started to go in the negatives, and ever since it's been in the negative. Right now, the federal deficit continues to expand. It's already up to $984 billion, which means that our federal government is spending nearly a trillion dollars more than what it's taking in in taxes. This is something that is concerning to have happen when we are in expansion and our economy is doing well. Now that brings us back to our portfolio and back to the question, what is the biggest threat in the market? What is the thing that threatens your money out of everything? And this is a trick question because it's none of the things I just went through. None of those things are the biggest threat to your finances. The biggest threat to your finances is yourself. It is your temperament. It's not your intelligence. It's not the companies that you picked. It's not if you picked the best holdings or if you purchased at the best times. It's if you can stay invested during this downturn. That is the single greatest threat to your portfolio. If you can stay invested. The reason that staying invested is so important is because it prevents you from doing something that is damaging to your finances. The damaging thing you can do to your finances is you can incur permanent loss. So there's two main ways that you can lose money with permanent loss. I'll go ahead to the whiteboard here and type these out for you. Number one is selling during a downturn. If you buy a company and then you sell it for less money than you purchased it, you have incurred permanent loss doing that. You have hurt your finances doing that. The second way is buying companies that drop in value and never recover that is the other big way that you incur permanent loss. There's really two different ways. So one of them is never selling during a downturn. It's obvious that if you bought stocks a week ago and then you sell them now, you just lost 10% and you're never going to recover that money that you lost there. You just realize those losses by locking them in and selling. The second way is a little bit more nuanced because we all have different holdings. We've all picked out the companies that we have and some of them will do poorly. Not every single company that I hold is going to do really well during a big recession. Some of them will go down in value and they will never recover. There'll be retractions with the business. They'll lose certain contracts and deals. They'll have declining revenue. They'll have to fire off people. The CEO will make the wrong decisions and close down the wrong parts of their company. And the company will never recover. It'll never get back to the valuation that it was at previously. That is a way that's more difficult to avoid. What you do to minimize this way is you diversify. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. If Simon Property goes way down in value, drops 95% in value, and it sits at 5% for five years, and it looks like it's just never going to recover, I might incur permanent loss on that holding. The reason that I have 47 holdings is so that I have a level of diversification spread across different sectors, and within those different sectors, I have different companies. So I've minimized the possibility of me incurring a lot of permanent loss with buying companies that drop in value and never recover. So to summarize, there's two main things that you can do that are actionable, that will protect you during a downturn. The main one is not selling. And this is the difficult one. This one relies on temperament. It relies on judgment. It relies on having your emotions controlled and not making decisions that are based off affairs and anxieties. You have to think about this. You bought these companies, you own equity in them. They're paying you dividends. They're doing their thing. They're still operating. Don't sell your equity in them. Don't sell your stake in them. This is the simplest thing you can do to preserve your wealth. As soon as you sell them, you lock in those losses, you realize those losses, and that is permanent loss there. The second thing that you can do is construct a portfolio that is one that is resilient during recessions. Try to buy companies that you're thinking of the economy going into recession. You're thinking of things contracting that money is now expensive to get. It's not easy. Nobody wants to loan to each other. Think about that situation. I've tried to go through and select a lot of different companies that I think are high quality, that I think are pretty healthy companies, but some of them are going to be losers. But that's the same with everybody's portfolio. So don't get discouraged if you have a couple of companies that aren't doing well. Just make sure that you're diversified into other holdings and you try to pick as healthy and solid of companies as possible. Now, another thing that you can do that's good to do during a downturn but not a requirement is to dollar cost average into your portfolio during a downturn. So let's take a look at this week, what I've done this week. On February 24th, when this started, this was Monday, I saw that the market went down, what, 3.5%? And I have the plus membership, so I have access to the evening trading window. And I thought, you know, this might be an opportunity to throw 500 bucks in and get a 3% discount. I had a feeling that the market could continue to go down, so I don't wanna put in all my savings and everything right when it goes down 3%. That's not what I plan to do. The next day, the 25th, it went down another three and a half percent. And so I put in another $500 and I got a little bit better of a deal. And then the next day, February twenty sixth, it went down again and I put in a $1,000. So, so far this week, I've put in $2,000. This is what I do. If we have a downturn, as I look at the amount of savings I have and I say, am I comfortable taking 5,000 of this and throwing it into the market as we go through a downturn? I think I'm comfortable with five to $6,000. So what I'm going to do is stagger this money out. And as the market continues to drop, I'll continue to dollar cost average this money into the market. And if it does continue to drop after I've put in all the money that I'm comfortable putting in from my savings, there's another method that I can do. I have a bonds portion of my portfolio. If I go to the one month view here, Let's take a look at how these bonds have held up. My overall is down $4,800 and my bonds are up 140 bucks. So this is capital that's been preserved by my bonds here. So I'm up $140 and you can see that since the rest of my portfolio has gone down in value, the bonds are now overweight their target's 20%, but they make up 21%, meaning they're currently overweight. If I click into them, I can see the exact amount. So I go to the value here, and I can see that they're overweight by $758. So what I will start doing, once I'm done feeding in cash myself, is I will go to this bonds pie, I will click buy and sell, and then I will sell for $758, the exact amount that I'm overweight. And what will happen is M1 Finance will throw that money into the other companies that have become underweight. That is a way that you can transition money from your bonds pie into your other equities that have fallen in value and take up pretty good deals doing that. So that's not something I'm in a rush to do. I'll let this play out a little bit longer, but as I'm using my own cash and dollar cost averaging, in, that is something that I plan on doing if the market continues to fall. Okay, let's move on to talk about some news here. The first thing is that Bob Iger, the previous CEO of Disney, he stepped down effective immediately. That's what happened this last Tuesday. Now, this is somewhat startling news to investors because usually when you have a transition like this, they announce it and they put out timelines and it's it's a little bit less immediate than it was in this process. But... I thought that there might be something wrong. I was wondering, is this some kind of Me Too thing? Uh, is Bob Iger okay? What's going on? It turns out that they say that there's no other reason. They say that Iger plans to focus on Disney's creative strategy through the remainder of his tenure. So he is going to stay with the company. He's just doing something that he wants to do, which is the creative part of the company. I look at this, and he's been the CEO of Disney for 15 years. He's increased the company value by about five times. He's been part of major acquisitions for Disney that have been pretty incredible. The acquisitions of Pixar completely transformed the company. The acquisition of Lucasfilm was such an incredibly good investment. They purchased it for $4 billion, and then the first Star Wars film they made, they made $2 billion on. So the acquisitions that they made have been incredible. Not only that, but he had a 21st Century Fox and Marvel, which they've turned into an entire universe of content. So Bob Iger has done a lot for Disney over his tenure. He's been extremely successful, and now he's moving to a role that seems more like one that he wants to do Because he wants to enjoy his time. One that has less board meetings and less stress associated with it. Now they replaced one Bob with another Bob. So we have the new CEO, Bob Chapek. Here in the Wall Street Journal, he is described as all business. Disney's new CEO is a number crunching tactician. There's no drama with Bob Chapek, who is described as relentless and disciplined about delivering on metrics. Now, this article does a good job. I read through it, and it describes the differences between the two CEOs, that they are quite different from each other. So they didn't try to replace Bob Iger with somebody with the same type of personality and management that he had. Here it describes a couple of their differences. They may share the same first name, but there are a few other similarities between Disney chairman Bob Iger and his successor chief executive Bob Chapek. While Mr. Iger is known for being charismatic and cosmopolitan and loves to hobnob, Mr. Chapek is all business with little time or interest in niceties. People who have worked closely with both say. Now, a former executive emphasized how he's focused on the numbers. He says that Bob Chapek doesn't fail. He's incredibly disciplined about doing what it takes to deliver the numbers. He is relentless in that regard. And then the last thing I'll mention from this article says that During Mr. Chapek's tenure as the head of the Parks and Resorts Division from 2015 until earlier this week, he amassed five consecutive years of growth thanks to a combination of historical expansion and strategic cost reductions. He prioritized double-digit annual growth, according to one former colleague, a goal he achieved in all but one year when the division's operating income grew 9%. So overall, reading about these two individuals, what are my thoughts on Mr. Chapek and him replacing Bob Iger? I thought that Bob Iger was a very competent CEO. Obviously, his tenure shows that he has accomplished a lot during his tenure. Now, Bob Chapek obviously seems like a number cruncher. Somebody focused a lot more on the metrics, which is which is a good quality for a CEO. He's running a business that needs to be profitable, that needs to expand and meet these different goals. He's not paid to be creative. Disney has a whole team of imaginary people that are paid to be creative. So that's not his job. He's being paid to run this company successfully. So overall, I see no issues with Bob Chapek being the new CEO. There's nothing of concern to me. In fact, I'm more bullish on Disney having the reduction in price now, I think that it's very much undervalued. So it's a company that I think has a lot of good properties. I think that Mr. Chapek here will be good towards the growth of the streaming service. It seems like he's somebody very numbers oriented, and he's going to do what it takes to get more subscribers. So I don't know what that is, but it seems like somebody that he's going to make a lot of focus on the big growth aspect of their company right now. So it's something that I think is an okay transition overall. I think that Disney will continue to struggle as this virus shuts down a lot of business in China and a lot of people traveling. But other than that, I think the outlook for Disney is very positive. Now, the last bit of news that I'll mention is this article written by Brian Barnes. He's the CEO and founder of M1 Finance. That's the broker that I use in every single video. Uh, He put out an article called Thanks a Billion. Pretty much the platform reached $1 billion in assets under management. Now, that's meaningful for a couple different reasons. One of them is that legitimacy in this area is something important to brokers. So, a lot of people deciding where to put their money, they want to put it with known entities that are handling a lot of money, not some unknown company that only has a few clients that you are questioning whether you can trust them or not. With a billion in assets under management, it gives a little bit more credibility to the company. So it's a pretty significant landmark to hit. Now I wanted to highlight just one thing in this article. It shows the growth of M1 Finance over the past few months. It said that in January, a month of flat markets, Our users' assets grew 21%. We also added more than 32,000 retail brokerage accounts, more than the 25,000 that E-Trade opened during that month. Fun fact, E-Trade spends more in marketing every five days than all the money we spent in the lifetime of M1. So I thought this was interesting a little bit of shots fired at Etrade saying that they spend a lot less in marketing and their platform's growing faster. One thing I'll point out is a few months back when all these brokerages were starting to go free. We had Schwab and Fidelity and every other brokerage that wasn't free finally caught up to Robinhood and M1 Finance. And I got so many messages about the doom and gloom of M1 Finance that this brokerage won't grow anymore. That people thought that the free trades must be the only thing keeping people using this platform. This goes to show that people enjoy using this beyond the free trade. So 32,000 new accounts opened in one month. They reached a billion dollars in assets under management. He also mentions the timeline of how they got to a billion dollars. So he says, getting to 1 billion puts us in an elite group that have hit this milestone, including Robinhood, Betterment, Wealthfront, Personal Capital, Acorns, and Stash. I'm especially proud to say that we reached this milestone with significantly less capital raised than all of them and in a shorter amount of time from the launch, all except for Robinhood. Then they have this graph here that shows how quickly they got to $1 billion. So they got there pretty quickly. I like seeing this because I work in tech. I've worked for a lot of startup companies. I like seeing smaller, innovative companies that are successful, that can compete with the big dinosaur companies that have been around for ages. So that's innovation. That's something I like to see. I'm glad that these companies are doing well despite there being Schwab's and Vanguard's. I don't want only a couple options to manage money. I like having all these different options and seeing who has the best tools. So I'm happy for M1 in that regard. And I'll mention if you're interested in using M1 Finance, there's a link in the description of the video so you can check that out. Okay, let's get to some emails. The email address has changed. So I still have the old email address. I'm still going to be responding to one sent there, but going forward, I'm going to be using the email address joseph at com. So that's joseph at show.com. You can also message me on Twitter or Instagram. They are both in the description of this video. Andre says, Hi, Joseph. I really appreciate your videos. I came across recently this interesting topic, and it would be nice to see it covered in a future video is it true that the value of stocks are just investors' imaginations and disconnected from real businesses? Is it true that the stock market is a Ponzi scheme? In particular, non-dividend paying growth stocks. What are your thoughts? Thank you. Then he leaves a quote here that says, the simple truth is profits from buying and selling stocks come from other investors who are buying and selling stocks. When someone buys low, and sells high, another sucker is also buying high and needs to sell even higher. Companies like Google, Amazon, Tesla never pay their shareholders. Their investors' profits are dependent on the inflows of money from new investors, which by definitions, is how a Ponzi scheme works. That is a quote from the book, The Ponzi Factor. Now, that's an interesting question, Andre. To answer your question, no, it would be very inaccurate to compare non-dividend paying growth stocks to a Ponzi scheme. So, there's so many ways that this comparison is inaccurate. I can go through a couple of them. Uh, one of them is the idea that the Ponzi scheme just means that in order to make money, you have to sell it to somebody else for more money than what you bought it. That is not what makes something a Ponzi scheme. That is the nature of almost all investing that's done in any facet in any way. So if I'm an investor that I invest in old signs, I like collecting Coca-Cola signs and old oil signs. Let's say that that's my style of investing. I would buy them. They would sit there and do nothing. And then I would sell them later on in hopes that I would make more money from somebody else than when I bought them. Because as they get older and they're kept in good condition, the nostalgia factor gets bigger and people will pay more money for them. The only thing that they do is sit there. They don't return money to me. They're not productive in any way. Does that make it a Ponzi scheme? Because I purchase something and the only thing I plan on doing with it is later on selling it for more money. No, that doesn't make it a Ponzi scheme. That just makes it an investment. I could say the same thing about gold. A block of gold sits there. It does nothing. It has no use. It just sits on a shelf. And I purchase it with the sole intent of selling it to somebody else for more money. That's, again, the way that he defines a Ponzi scheme. That's not a Ponzi scheme. I could take land. Let's say that I think that there's going to be future development in this area. So I buy a plot of land. I don't do anything with it. It just sits there doesn't pay me dividends, doesn't pay me cash, returns no money to me in any way, and I hold it for 10 years with the hopes to sell it to somebody else for more money. Does that make it a Ponzi scheme? No. So I could give endless examples of what he's defining as a Ponzi scheme that does not fit the definition of a Ponzi scheme. He outlined one little component that keeps a Ponzi scheme going for a while, but he didn't outline the core component of what meets the definition of a Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme is when I go and I ask for investors money with this big plan of what I'm going to do with this money and they give me the money and they think that I'm going to make these purchases with the money. So they think that I'm going to purchase these different types of specific stocks and these things and then I print off papers saying, "Yeah, I did purchase all this stuff." So all of it's good to go. Here's evidence of it. But I lied through my teeth and I really just kept the money and I bought a car I want, I bought a home I want, and I went on vacation. That's what a ponzi scheme is. Is when somebody takes money and then they pretend to be doing one thing with it when they're really doing another thing with it. They really aren't buying the underlying assets that they're reporting to others that they purchased. That's what a Ponzi scheme is. It's a lack of actual purchasing of the assets that the investors want to purchase. So you can look at Bernie Madoff. He took billions of dollars from investors. He said in his paperwork, he created paperwork that said, that he was purchasing all these different stocks and bonds and these different methods of investing, right? And he reported that to his investors. He reported fake returns. In reality, he didn't purchase any of that. That's what made it a Ponzi scheme, was him saying he purchased something that he didn't, and he used the money for other ways than what was reported. That is exactly what made it a Ponzi scheme. The mechanic of him using money from investors to pay off other investors, that is just one mechanic with a Ponzi scheme. That is not what makes it a Ponzi scheme. What actually makes it a Ponzi scheme is not purchasing the underlying assets. Now beyond that, comparing Google, Amazon and Tesla to the same thing of a real Ponzi scheme like Bernie Madoff uh, is completely ridiculous. For instance, if any scenario played out in any way, you can take Literally any hypothetical in the world, and they apply differently to those two situations. So, in the case of Bernie Madoff, when it was found out that he was a Ponzi scheme, the government came in and they seized all the assets that Bernie Madoff owned. And the problem was, since he didn't really purchase any assets, he didn't own a whole lot. The only thing that he actually owned was some of the cash that investors gave him. That was the problem with it. Let's take a similar scenario with Amazon. Let's say that the government came in and said, Amazon is a Ponzi scheme. We're going to take all of your assets so that we can try to make some of our investors whole. The difference in those scenarios is Amazon actually owns a lot of things. Amazon actually generates tens of billions of dollars every single year that could be paid out to investors. That's a difference in it. There's an actual asset behind Amazon. There's not one behind a real Ponzi scheme. So there's really not much similar between the two. And to make that connection, you would have to do it in a very specifically molded, specifically architected argument. I can see the authors doing that by using this very specific definition of a Ponzi scheme that ignores the most critical components of it. Josiah says, hey, Joseph, love your show and appreciate the time that you put into it. With the whole coronavirus outbreak, the cruise industry has taken a huge hit in the stock market. In your opinion, is this an opportunity to pick up solid companies such as Royal Caribbean on sale, or would you stay away from the cruise industry? Thanks. Yeah, so I've been asked about this quite a bit, about Carnival Cruises and Royal Caribbean. These are definitely down in value. So they've gone down dramatically. I think that they're at the point where they would be value buys. So you're probably buying them undervalued right now. The question is for me, do I really want a cruise line in my portfolio? Is that the company that I want in my portfolio? and an industry, I realized that the industry is growing. So cruises have become more cool for younger people. They've done good at courting them and making them more theme-parked and less old-fashioned Titanic-era type of cruises. Now they make them so they have theme parks and climbing courses, and they have even like roller coasters on some of them now, crazy stuff like that. So I realized that they're attracting a younger audience, that they're increasing their sales year over year, that type of thing. I don't know too much about the industry or the real risks involved with it. I know that it takes a billion dollars to build one of these cruise ships, that they rely on workers from foreign countries that are paid very low wages to keep these things running at good profits. And I don't know the chance of anything in the industry changing. So right now, I haven't done enough research on it to be confident in putting a lot of money into one of these companies. But if you have put the research into it and you're confident, now is definitely the time to start picking up shares in them. Yuto says, Hi, Joseph. I am a 26-year-old corporate scientist in Japan. I started studying finances after I left grad school and realized how ignorant I was about money. I love your show, and I think you have a very charming sense of sarcasm. Uh, I appreciate that, Yuto, and I think it's awesome that we have fans in Japan now. That's how far our reach is on YouTube, guys. That's pretty cool. So I actually looked at the demographics and... We have about 60% of the audience here in the U.S., and then 40% are outside of the U.S., spread broadly across so many different countries. So it's pretty cool to get lots of different backgrounds and experience and people of all different ages and All of this comes together, and I hear a very variety opinion of thoughts. So interesting thing to see. But anyway, you say, I currently have 35k invested in a portfolio very similar to yours, but there's one thing that is bothering me lately. In episode 55, you introduced a very scare quotes, intelligent gentleman who warned us that everyone sold out during the recession. In theory, I understand it is best to hold on to your stocks and just keep investing during a recession. However, I'm not sure I have the mental strength to do that. I've never been through one after all. So my question is, what is the difference? What is the difference between the ones who sold and the ones who kept buying? Peter Lynch described it as having a stomach, but what does that mean exactly? Was it the belief that the market will recover? Was it the years of experience in investing? Or was it the comfort of cash cushion, perhaps? It would be great to hear your thoughts, Yuto. I think that it's a combination of factors. I think that it's more than one thing that keeps somebody invested, and typically more than one thing that keeps somebody not invested. So, definitely a cash cushion, having some money in the bank that you can rely on if you lose your job, that'll make it so that you're more likely to stay invested during a downturn. So, the amount of cushion that you have with your finances, that's one aspect of it. Another one is your portfolio construction. So, if you have a very aggressive portfolio where you're taking heavy losses every single day, more than the market, that's going to make it so that you're feeling a little bit in a, in a bad place. So if you're going down much more than the market, typically that will make it so that you're more likely to sell during a recession. That's why people like Benjamin Graham, he actually recommends in the book The Intelligent Investor to have 50% for the average investor, 50% bonds in their portfolio. He knows that they give a lower return. The reason that he recommends having 50% bonds in people's portfolios is so that during a downturn, they don't sell. That one reason, knowing that they'll give the investor a lower return, he still thinks it's imperative that you don't sell during a downturn. And if owning 50% bonds prevents you from doing that by making it so that your portfolio isn't falling as much as the market, he thinks that that's worth it. Now, that book is, is pretty old, and bonds were a better instrument back then when they had a higher yield. So they're not quite the same thing today. And I think his advice might be different today. But the same principle stands that if you can do something to make it so your portfolio has a little bit lower returns, but makes it a lot less likely for you to sell during a downturn, that is a good move to make. You don't have to absolutely maximize returns in every single facet. You have to have good returns while protecting yourself from yourself. So that's something that's another factor. I think that there's also an issue with people being leveraged. So before 2007, a lot of people were doing crazy things. They were taking out second mortgages, HELOCs on their home, and investing that in the stock market. So when they lost money in the stock market, they were actually losing money that they had collateralized against their house. So there was crazy things going on like that. A lot of people heavily leveraged. Uh, That's not happening, I think, quite as much right now. But I would say overall, the biggest factor is temperament. So that's just a personality thing. It's not who's the most intelligent or who's the most methodical. It's who has the best control over their emotions, the best temperament to be an investor. So somebody that has the investor temperament is someone that does not get worried about the situation. They don't have anxiety towards it. They're not freaking out about it. They have a very common collected temperament, almost robotic. That's what makes investors pretty good, is having an almost robotic temperament where they're not going to get worked up about something. Now, I think it's easy to sit here and say, well, I have the right temperament to be an investor. I'm smart enough to know not to sell during a downturn. I'm not a dummy that's going to do that. So I I think I'm set, right? I have the right temperament. I have the right game plan, and I'm not going to sell during a downturn. That's easier said than done. If you put yourself in the situation of an actual recession, right now we're not in a recession. We're in a very quick drop in the market, but this isn't a recession. From what I see is still a lot of excitement. People just saying, oh, here's a chance to buy up shares at a discount, right? A real recession is contraction in the economy. When you have companies like Citigroup in 2008 that laid off 75,000 people, that's a lot of people that lost their jobs. Bank of America laid off 35,000 people. Microsoft laid off 5,000 people. Hewlett-Packard laid off 24,000 people. This was happening all around the same time. The unemployment rate was spiking upwards. Lots of highly educated people couldn't find work. They were living off of unemployment. They were wanting just an income, let alone investing strategy. They were just thinking about having an income to feed their family, to pay their mortgage, and to get through the next month. So that's the situation that you have to put yourself in, is what would happen if that's what the economy turned to? What would happen if everything went back to a a contracting economy, lots of intelligent people looking for work, very hard to find it, and there's a possibility you could get laid off. So that's a scary situation. That changes the picture of how easy it is to stay invested during a downturn, but that is what you may face in the future at some point, and so it's better to prepare while the economy's good. Start building up a savings. That will give you confidence to stay invested. And if you lose your job, it'll give you the ability to go a long duration of time and be just fine. And then another thing you can do is have a portion of your investments in bonds. Bonds don't have the highest returns. My portfolio is not going to make as much money as the S&P 500 if I just leave it how it is. It's more defensive. 20% of it's in bonds. But what that does do is give me confidence to continually invest because I know a portion of my money is able to have that capital withdrawn if I ever need it for an emergency. If you buy treasury bonds and corporate bonds, they will hold their value better than equities will. So these things are decisions you have to make now to protect yourself from yourself in the future, that you might actually damage your finances in the future if you don't take precautions right now. So my suggestion is To make it so that you're on the side that you never sell during a recession, you should build up savings and have your portfolio in type of instruments that aren't gonna lose as much money during a downturn. That's my two main suggestions. All right, well, I appreciate the questions. That's all I'm gonna do for this video. If you haven't already, do me a favor and like the video, subscribe to the channel, share it with friends. All that stuff really helps out the channel. And like I said, I'll keep sharing this portfolio, keep giving updates, whether it's good or bad. So this is the real thing. You're going to see both sides of it. One, we're in the green, one, we're in the red. If the stock market keeps going down and we enter into the red and we're losing money, I'm going to keep showing it. This is the real thing. So I hope you guys have a good weekend. I will check in with you next week.